Hi, everyone. This is Samira Daswani, the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. I have a very special guest with me, uh, Matthew, here today, who I think has an incredible story and is has been willing to share it with the rest of the community, I think for the benefit of others. So with that, I'm just going to open up. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Matthew, so we opened our conversation this morning by you telling me you moved to Michigan. I did. Can we start by why you moved to Michigan? So um, my partner and I were living in Nashville. She is a lawyer um, and she's a public defender and she, we wanted a fresh start and we came to Detroit for my birthday and she applied for a job with the state of Michigan and got it. And here we are. I'm just the handsome cancer sugar baby along for the ride. I love the tone of phrase there, handsome cancer sugar baby. Well, it's one of the first things my sister said to me um, after I was diagnosed. You know, people are sometimes there, uh, they don't know what to say. Um, and it's not like there's a, 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 a guidebook. Anyway, my sister is uh, sitting in the corner in the hospital room like, six or seven hours after doctors told me I had metastatic pancreatic cancer. And she's like, I don't know what it is, but uh, I think you look more handsome now that, <laughs> that you're very sick. Um, my sister, uh, she came with all the, the hot takes in the, uh, the cancer ward. <laughs> is this an older sister, younger sister? No, this is a little sister. Ah, you know, little little siblings uh, are the best. I think (laughs) I have two younger brothers uh, and they're identical twins. But one of them is, quote unquote, younger by like, you know, a minute. But he definitely plays the I'm the youngest sibling card. And he, I think, had had a similar similar role in my in my cancer experience. The, the, um, the, the, The one giving you a hard time? Uh, or just making lots of fun of it and trying yeah. to raise morale by being, you know, witty and funny, but also secretly freaking the hell out. But right, the, to, like have a very good positive outlook on everything. The, the funny thing about my sister is that she is like the sweetest, most caring person, and she and I, like, we love each other very much, but we also have a very antagonistic relationship. So I feel like my little sister talks to me in a way she would never talk to anyone else in the world. Um, but I I love that kind of relationship with her. Um, I remember the uh, another thing she said to me when I was in the hospital, like the, the day of the, the diagnosis, she was, all of my friends made such a fuss around me. Um, and that's great. Um, because my sister has two small boys and she couldn't do that. Um, but she's sitting, she was there when I was diagnosed and she was sitting in the corner and she was like, you have so many friends and they love you so much. And I just do not understand why. (laughs) And we both start laughing and the nurse in the room looks horrified. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) Um, Matthew, I want to go back to uh, Detroit and Michigan. So, yeah. So now you're a you know very handsome cancer sugar baby, but you also had a very very cool backstory of being a geographer. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, Can you talk about that, please? I I became, I, I guess I wanted to become a geographer. I, I've wanted to become a geographer since the seventh grade. I had this geography teacher in middle school named Dr. Friesman, who was like a very, you know, like austere Puritan like grandfatherly long nose that he would look down at you you know um he was he was kind of a scary guy um but also he like lived on a sailboat and drove a motorcycle and lectured to us and i swear that this is real this happened um he lectured to us through an owl puppet what? Named Dr. Geo, and he would just like speak to this owl puppet, this like very serious, very grandfatherly man who was a who had a PhD. His name was Dr. Friesman, right? He was he he taught middle school uh, geography, and he was terrifying. And mm-hmm. also the puppet, which maybe made him more endearing or more terrifying. Um, maybe both simultaneously. It's really difficult to say. Um, but since that class, I've wanted to be a geographer. Um, and uh, before all of this started, I was a PhD candidate in geography at the University of Kentucky. Um, and my research focused on the development of geographic ideas. So I'm interested in the way ideas of space and place developed over time. It's more complicated than that, but that's the that's the the quick and dirty of it. Okay, so here's a problem with having a podcast that I host. Um, I get to decide where we go with the conversation, and I know we're <laughs> supposed to talk about pancreatic cancer, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I love geography. Okay. I well, these are all all these scary books behind me. These are. I had to position the camera in such a way to hide the disquieting number of books. Oh, that's okay. Don't worry. I, I, I mean, if you look behind me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's just... Okay, this is great. All right. So let's, let's actually, if you're okay with it, let's stick with geography yeah. for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Partly because uh, my favorite subject in high school was also geography. I didn't know you could be a geographer. I wanted to be a cartographer and an ichthyologist, a yeah. scientist, and uh, I was pretty convinced I was going to do both those things. And I used to love map making. It was just the thing I like, but it's not a thing you can do in India when you grow up in high school. So, is, so I actually have a book about the history of geography in India. What? Yeah, um, that's p- part of the part of the being uh, studying the history of geographic thought is that I have books about the development of the discipline in various countries, um, and I've read the book. I don't know where it is, um, but when I find it, I'll just send it to you. Um, but I would love to talk a bit more about time and place. Yeah. So your thesis topic. Why did you pick that? How did you pick that? Um, so my, my, my master's research was kind of traditional political geography. I studied, uh, Jewish Zionist and anti-Zionist, uh, activist networks and how they formed and what the implications of that were for thinking about geopolitics more broadly. And, um, when I, 
when I moved to the PhD, I began, I became interested in how ideas of space and place were, um, were used to think about ideas of uh, um, race and ethnicity, mostly. I'm interested in uh, issues of identity and difference broadly, but um, the, the, the focus of my dissertation research was how, um, how geographers and related, I don't know, spatially interested social scientists used ideas of space and place to think about race. Huh. Um, and there are a lot of ways that um, social scientists have done that. Um, my research focused on how they used uh, Jewish spatiality, um, ideas of uh, uh, about Jewish geography to think about race in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, you've maybe heard the phrase rootless cosmopolitan, right? The kind of traditional anti-Semitic canard um, is, I mean, the, the, the Soviet version of a, um, of an um, anti-Semitic myth that is 2,000 years old about the wandering Jew. Um, and those ideas of Jewish placelessness became important for how the taxonomy, the modern taxonomy of race formed in the late 19th, early 20th century um, in the you know, Western Academy. It's not just like there was an idea about race, right? Like the platonic form of race that that we just we just had, right? It is an idea that has developed um, over time. Um, and so I was particularly interested in the rise of the modern university and how, and at that point, no one was really anything. You, you you ever read like a Wikipedia article about a thinker from the 19th century? And it's like, oh, they were a poet, a mathematician, they, uh, uh, an alchemist, a wizard. Uh, they, every, uh, people, you were, you, if you were learned, you were just everything, right? You were making eyeglasses. You were like Benjamin Franklin. I saw you argue, if it helps. Yeah. Um, so at that point, a lot of a lot of early social scientists were medical doctors, um, anthropologists and geographers often had degrees in medicine. Um, and, you know, it, it there's if you've watched any I don't know, for me, it's movies about colonialism. Right. It's the the doctor who makes a bunch of money and then like wants to go explore the world. Um, and that is, that's a, that's a, I think a common archetype in the history of the social sciences. So, so help me understand. So I'm completely with you if it helps. And I'm so, so thrilled that we're talking about this because I never get to do this on this podcast. So yeah, eh, it's great. Uh, so I studied art history uh, and I studied bioengineering and yes. I was always, and I think I still am perceived as a weird one, right? It's a weird one. It's like you study both those things. And what kept me going actually was the archetypes you're talking about, right? If you go back a hundred something years, that was very normal. 
it was very normal. Like the, the delineation we make today between art and science, geography and politics, the very many, many, many types of social sciences is somewhat artificial because we've created those boundaries for a variety of reasons. And anytime you start blurring boundaries today, everyone kind of like gets freaked out a little bit. Um, but I love that you're talking about that. So if you don't mind, let's let's keep going down that that um, yeah. path. I'd love to better understand when you talk about the early beginnings of what now has become sort of a foundational layer for the taxonomy of the Jewish identity and that of geospatial work that you do. And I am we're recording at a very... <laughs> a temporal, temporally relevant point in time. Um, yeah. I'd love you to talk a little bit about how space and time matters in the development of identity. Sorry, I know. Well, there yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. But, you know, in the span of five minutes. If sure, you sure. Um, I think there is, there's a really great book by Bell Hooks where she, she talks about the importance of, of place in her life um, and how, I mean, she was from, she was a black woman from rural Kentucky. Um, and it's so, so funny for me how often like, I mean, bell hooks in a lot of ways taught me to think about space and place in the same way uh, or in a related way that Audre Lorde taught me how to be a cancer survivor. Um, and it's a, those are both experiences that I've taken uh, a great deal from. Um, I can say from my personal experience that uh, being, a, I don't know, a, a, a a mostly Eastern European Jew from New York is, uh, is, is a very particular kind of cultural experience. And at the same time, like when, when we're, when I'm four years old, we moved to South Florida. I grew up in Palm Beach County in a place called Jupiter, um, where, where, um, being, a a Jew from New York in the early nineties was, I felt very out of place. I mean, thank God I look so Protestant that, it, you know, if I kept my mouth shut, uh, no one would know, right. I'm six feet tall. I, I just, I, I look like I drink may, I drink mayonnaise right out of the jar. Um, and in a lot of ways that helped me get through middle school and high school. Um, but I became keenly aware of uh, a, a liminal um, suburban American geography that made me feel both out of place in South Florida because, I, I mean, I had this accent, uh, I got made fun of in elementary school, and then at the same time I would go home to New York and uh, people would be like, you're, you know, you're not from here. And it sounds like a triviality. And in a lot of ways it is. Um, but it is, it's the, that experience 
of 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 being from one place but really being from another um and the complicated relationship between those two things that got me thinking about uh identity and geography in the first place when i was a little tyke even before dr friesman lectured to me with his hand up the butt of an owl that he called dr geo um i was thinking about this so can we can we go to where you went right so there were a couple of things you mentioned that i think for me in today today's identity of myself and i'm assuming i'm, I'm projecting a little bit on you but may, maybe for yourself now it's not just about your jewish identity you've moved to detroit i imagine that there's some amount of that playing out right now as well but there's also the cancer identity yeah and if you don't mind talking a bit more about that, like what are the similarities? What are the differences? Oh, uh, between, be you know, it's funny um, because there is historically such a connection between uh, cancer and the Jewish community. Um, there's, there's a really great book called Freud's Jaw, where, I mean, it's, it's a discussion of Freud's... Um, Freud's struggle with cancer. Um, I didn't even realize this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you look for it, you can find there are cancers just everywhere. And if you want, if you want to find smart people writing about cancer, there are there are tons of. I mean, Derrida, Derrida, Jacques Derrida uh, is a. It was uh, died of pancreatic cancer, and uh, and and there's a whole interview in Le Monde uh, that where he talks about uh, he says my body is at war with itself. Um, actually, the story of Derrida uh, and pancreatic cancer is uh, really really interesting and it's something i'm thinking about writing about um but that's another entryway into what i was going to say because both Jacques derrida and sigmund freud are such important figures in the jewish intellectual tradition both of them uh died of cancer um and yeah uh, uh i'm braca 2 positive or whatever the i'm i'm still not clear on the the parlance of of the the of, of medicine, um, but being being one of those kinds of people, um, it's you you become very uh, clearly identifiable as Jewish. I think it's like something my my oncologist said to me very casually um, after. They discovered the, you know, the tumor on my pancreas and throughout my gut. Um, he was like, "Your sister is BRCA has a uh, BRCA two, and your mom died. Yeah, you did. You're you probably you're Jewish. Yes, probably. Um, and it's something. It's not like I I wasn't offended or anything like that. It's just like, um." There is a very clear connection historically between narratives of cancer um, and Jewish identity, and it's one of those one of those ways that you 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 become subject, right? It's like, oh, cancer, Brock, Jew. Huh. You know uh, the it's I'm ha ah, okay. I have no words right now. The reason you seem kind of stumped a little bit is. I mean, I'm a breast cancer survivor, right? And mm -hmm. 
BRCA1, BRCA2 are very common. And yeah, I yeah. have a lot of Jewish friends who are BRCA positive uh, a lot. Yeah. I have people who've been diagnosed and the people who have not gotten diagnosed yet. I've had people who, and these are like very close friends of mine. And the way you just framed it, I, I think I had underappreciated how interwoven those two things are from an identity perspective for people I'm incredibly close to. So I, I just, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's, it's not quite, I, I didn't hear you say stigmatized, but it feels. You are made subject. No, like it feels personal and it feels, uh, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. You're not saying that I'm saying that, but, uh, no. it does feel personal. It feels almost like, yeah. And I, I think the reason it, it, it often doesn't feel, it can be stigmatizing, right? Like there is a, there is a, 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 a narrative of malignancy in the larger history of anti-Semitic discourse, but there's also a very rich history of Jews using biological discourses as a way to respond to anti-Semitism, right? So, um, you, and you see this a little uh, play out a little bit in narratives about Bracha because um, at the same time that like non-Jews, you like often rhetorically use Bracha to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, identify you, um, Jews have also used that same biological medical narrative um, as a way to build community um, and foster solidarity in, uh, you know, a, a still very much diasporic community. Yeah. Huh. I, uh, I'm struck by what you said because uh this is an area where i i imagine that the biological identity of the jewish community has been both used against and then has been hopefully to, to the point you're making been a impetus for community building and solidarity building but i imagine that it's been used in both ways and up until this conversation, I actually, for some reason, had not linked it to the cancer identity. But in hearing you talk about it, it feels so interwoven into medical identity, into the interactions with physicians and the interactions with the cancer system. I, uh, I'm having a moment of uh, appreciation of how incredibly hard it must be. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Um, this is one of those, uh, (laughs) yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, I got nothing. You got nothing. No, no, no. That is so inherently complicated. We're talking like 200 years of complexity in about five minutes. So, yeah, me being both stumped for words is, I think, a fairly expected reaction. Uh, where I want to really, go, oh, go ahead. I really want the the whole time I was thinking about this. 
there's a Law and Order episode. It's a lot an episode of Law and Order Criminal Intent where <laughs> uh, it's so complicated. It's so complicated and it's so contrived. But there is a anti-Semitism cancer narrative in this episode. <laughs> Um, and if I can, I'm going to, after this, I'm going to find it. I'm going to send it to you. It's, it's too, it's too abstract even for me to explain, but it's great. Um, and if you can, if you can, uh, stand one episode of, uh, a police drama, um, then, uh, I, I, I suggest it. Done. Okay. All right. I'm excited. Um, I'll, I'll share what I, where my head was. Uh, there's an author called Hossein Hamid. I don't know if you've ever read his work. Mm-mm. He, this is so temporal, but he's a Pakistani author who wrote, he was in the US and he wrote a few books, one of which I think has been, had a huge profound impact on me. And this was post 9-11. And the book is called Reluctant Fundamentalist. The reason I am referring to that is less about the content of the book. It's, it's a fiction book. It's I mean, of course, drawing from personal experiences, but fiction. But his style of writing is something that uh, resonated in the way we were communicating right now, because there was a lot of things that it's a very short book. I'm talking 120 pages, very short. And in that book, he does an incredible job of communicating the inherent complexity of identity and in this case, the Pakistani identity, while in the U.S. as an immigrant, post 9-11. But it do, he does it in such a simple fashion. And by simple, I don't mean simplistic. It's actually incredibly well executed. But there is so much that he doesn't say. And yet, the impact it has on you is one of immense empathy sadness uh it, it just it's it's an incredibly well done book and what occurred to me in our exchange right now is there was a lot of stuff that was not said that there was a lot of stuff that was implied suggested uh hinted at but a lot was not said and i think it just reminded me of his book and how complex the narratives around identity are how rooted in it in space and time and both contemporary and then historical events that have happened and how when we enter these conversations especially when it comes to the medical arena clinicians have had to develop a shorthand because you what you get 20 minutes of a patient yeah and in those 20 minutes if you're a clinician you're trying to deliver like, hey, here's the cancer diagnosis. Here's what we need to do. Here's the like timeline. Here's the pro- like effectively the project management schedule. And yet you have these like currents that are running underneath it that uh, are often, uh, I think to some extent, they, they just can't be addressed in a 20 minute appointment, but it's, yes. it, it is running uh, in those moments of interaction. So um, I, I agree with you. I am, okay. So for like, Several years, I taught a class called the Global Dynamics of Health and Disease. I was a, I, I, I taught these uh, recitation sections for this 
professor who was i you know he was one of he wasn't there for 61 years but he was there for like 200 years and he was like a quantitative a quantitative social scientist one of the early geographers to study space and health and medicine an early originator of research on telemedicine and that class was a it ticked one of those boxes that you know you have to tick uh, even if you want to go to medical school, you need, you know, you need to, you need to take a social, a certain number of social science classes. So I had a ton of future doctors as students and I'm going to be real. Sometimes they can't write for shit and Sometimes, and I think this is in a lot of cases, universities coddle students and allow them to just do what they're good at yes. and get away with not being good at what, at what they're not good at. And it makes doctors, it appeals to a certain kind of personality um, that, and that, that, Gosh, I don't want to I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush or knock doctors, but like we can do better, right? We 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 can do better in how we educate doctors in the humanities and social sciences so that those 20 minutes are more thoughtfully executed. Yeah, I <laughs> I I don't think you're painting with too broad a brush. Uh I And this is where I think given my undergrad undergrad experiences, I, I cannot tell you how often I went on the rant you just went on. And it's not just doctors, right? I think it's engineers. I think it's political oh. science. I, I think it's the politicians. It's... I think it's the leaders. I think it's CEOs. Like, I, I really think our educational system needs a rehaul because we do not do a good job of teaching people how to write, to communicate, how to understand complexity and simplify it. And nuance. And nuance. Exactly. It's, I, yeah. Being a, doctor, <laughs> being a doctor should be a hard thing to become. And it should be hard in, in ways that are not directly connected to medicine. Yes. Um, you, you know, I, I'm the beneficiary of an incredibly thoughtful oncologist and you know, there are parts of the story that are um, where that that he was not thoughtful. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, what I love about my oncologist is that he's a curious person and and he is an indefatigable spirit. Um, and in those moments where he is not thoughtful, you can tell him. That he's not had that, and I have, and I, I don't know if it's something I'm allowed to do. Um, and I think sometimes I talk to doctors. I okay, I think this is my mother. Um, I talk to doctors like they work for me. I do. Um, and I, yeah. Um, if I didn't like what he said, or I thought he wasn't thinking about something in, in you know, or, or there were things left unthought, I would say it. So let's talk about that, right? Because I think that, that actually, that, that is a, a very normal theme on this podcast for what it's worth is uh, doc patient communications, because I, 
I would love to better understand why you think doctors work for you. I think a lot of doctors, in my experience, are... I think it's a product of my personality, and I think it's also a way I've found um, to uh, advocate for myself effectively, that sometimes doctors are not used to being spoken to in a certain way, um, and if you uh, are willing to get up in their grill a little bit, um, oftentimes you can get what you want or you can you can come to some kind of understanding. Um, and especially, I mean, my, my oncologist is the chief of oncology at a major cancer research institute, right? Like he's the boss. And... And sometimes uh, that, that, that colors people's judgments. And sometimes if you shake them a little bit, uh, you can, you can at least, you, you can at least um, make, you might not steer the ship, but like you can be involved in the direction, right? You're, you're certainly, uh, you're you're controlling the trajectory as a as a partner at least. Uh, can you give us an example? <sighs> okay, so I had this pain um, after surgery. Um, to make a long story short, I had uh, one aborted Whipple and one successful Whipple. And between that, I did chemo for many months. Um, and at one point, I, um, for months after the, um, the first Whipple, I had this pain that was bad enough to get me to see stars and sometimes, like, uh, like it felt like getting the wind knocked out of me. Um, and I kept telling uh, my oncologist about it, and he kept telling me to eat smaller meals. And and there was very obviously a um, a, a lack of understanding about pain um and uh i think that's man that that is complicated by the age of your doctor and the experience of being a doctor through the um through the opioid uh crisis but uh, finally, and the the nurse practitioner was in the room. I was just like, "No, it hurts," and I'm I fall over, and uh, really, there was never any resolution. Uh, I never figured. We never had a discussion about what the pain was or why the pain was, and I never got any clarity on that matter. But I did get pain relief. Um, and it, it took me being like, like having to, to be a little mouthy, um, to, uh, get 
my care team and and they are so attentive in so many ways um and good to me but sometimes like people's people's judgment is clouded people's understanding of something as abstract as pain is it, you know is it, it something that abstract becomes minimized becomes uh, marginal um especially if someone has never experienced uh pain like that or gone through two whipples and chemotherapy um and it is it's I, this is horrible, but um, one of the ways, one of the things I would say when someone would disregard what I was talking about um, or what I was experiencing is I would say, well, one day you will have metastatic pancreatic cancer and you, you'll, then you'll know, right? It's like my mom would say, one day you'll grow up. And you'll see. Um, and and of course, I don't wish metastatic pancreatic cancer on anyone. It's fucking the worst. It's horrible. But it's one way of saying it can happen to anyone. And and it's another, and, and it's one way of saying that that the experience is difficult to capture and difficult to empathize with unless you have been through it or something similar. If you are a dyed-in-the-wool cancer muggle, if you have just, you have, you have, it is totally abstract to you, then uh, sometimes you say crazy things. Sometimes you say such erasive things that the, 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 the jerk in me, the uh, feels compelled to push back. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think you saw me like crack up. It was uh, not because I think it was actually not because I think your reaction was uh, unexpected. It was because it is ridiculous to me <laughs> that patients have to do that. It truly is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. And the worst part of this is I know for a fact that the oncology care team, including the nurse and the oncologist, are so well-intentioned. They are so well-intentioned, right? So they are coming at it from such a good place. And then it fails. <laughs> and it just, it's like... And that, that... You, I, I was 32 years old and diagnosed with a disease, like the worst version of a disease that mostly affects people in their 70s, right? The chances of, of, of getting pancreatic cancer at my age, it's like 0.6 for every 100,000 people, um, I, I didn't know how to act. I, 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 I'm difficult on, on the best of days. I, I did not know how to act. 
And after a while, I realized that no one knew how to act. And so sometimes we were, we were going to behave poorly. And for me, it's not, it's not an if you behave poorly. It's a when and a how. And it's going to happen. And you're going to go out of your mind a little bit. And everyone else is is going to lose their mind they're going to lose their cool around you because you're dying and you know that and and there's a taboo around that and i just try i don't come by grace naturally but i try and i certainly don't come by grace uh as a jew because i feel like it's a very christian thing but i try so hard to give people the understanding to allow, like, it's not if you mess up, it's like what you do after you mess up. Um, Matthew, how old are you? I'm 35. Okay, so three years, huh? Uh, yeah. I think you know the deal on that. That's actually, <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah. that's actually um, pretty, pretty good. Yeah, yes. Um... Yeah, I, someone, I was at a wedding this past weekend and someone, uh, a, a colleague of mine, a former colleague from graduate school, I hadn't seen in a while. She was like, oh man, you beat the odds twice. Um, because like, um, on the one hand, it's like so hilariously, it's not, I'm not the youngest. I'm not the only one. Um, certainly not. There are others. Um but it's pretty rare. And then it's not like, and people are like, oh, but they caught it early. And then no, they did not catch it early. Um, in early Jan in January of 2021, I started experiencing symptoms of obstructive jaundice. Oh. Um, so uh my and gosh. November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, and we're supposed to be talking about the fucking symptoms of pancreatic cancer, which means that I have to talk about poop constantly. And it's just like, on the one hand, I love talking about it. On the other hand, it's like, can I just have some dignity for once in my life? Um, so it, I, I started like my poop turned white and my Whoa. urine was, uh, was really dark, um, like coffee dark. Um, and I started experiencing symptoms of, of, um, uh, itching, itching, uh, really, really intense itching that was so bad that. For the two nights that I had it, I would like scald my hands and feet under the in in the bathtub as hot as I could get the water to numb my flesh so that I could sleep. I had no idea what was going on. And finally, after I think it was day three, um, the second night after the second night of the really intense itching, I went to an urgent care. I had moved to North Carolina during the pandemic because I had lost my job and I went there as a place to land. 
and I didn't have a doctor yet. I mean, I have Crohn's disease. I hadn't gotten a, I, I hadn't secured a GI yet. I didn't know what was going on. I was terrified. I go to this urgent care and they do a blood test and like my liver enzymes and bilirubin are, are really, really elevated. Um, and she, I remember she, the young nurse practitioner is shining a light in my eyes because I hadn't turned yellow and I'm pretty pale. Um, so you would, you, you know, she was like, um, my, she's shining the light in my eyes and she's like, I don't know. Do they look yellow to you? And I remember thinking, I, I don't know. I do have a light in my eyes. You tell me if they're yellow. And it's like one of those being Jewish, but not looking Jewish, having cancer, but not looking like you have cancer, having jaundice, but not looking like you have jaundice. Why does everything always have to be so fucking complicated? Um, but after I get the, the blood tests back, uh, and, and she's like, whoa, not good, not good. Uh, do you have a doctor? And I was like, oh. I was hoping to find one here. Um, and she was like, well, uh, I think you should go to the emergency room. Um, so I went to the emergency room and they, and it was like during COVID, this is like at the height of COVID. So going to the uh, emergency room I went to in Durham, North Carolina, it was like going inside of a fortress. <laughs> it was, it was wild. And I'm there for two days they find a stricture in my common bile duct, um, which is what's causing the, the really terrifying symptoms. They don't know what is the cause of the uh, a stricture. They put a stent in there and they say, well, we, you know, there's a um, biopsy results we're going to wait for, but sometimes you know, we're going to put this stent in and maybe it'll stretch it out. And in a few weeks, we'll take the stent out. Um, and in the meantime, we'll wait on these results. And I went home and I felt pretty, pretty okay um, that uh, my these very fancy doctors were, you know, had assured me that, uh, you know, uh, because of my age and, and relative health that like, there was really nothing to be worried about. And I remember coming home and I called my sister and she knew I was in the ER for two days. And I just, I, you know, I wanted to give her a heads up and she says, let me t tell me your symptoms. And right. She's a mom. Um, so I, and, and a lunatic. So I feel like she's constantly just Googling symptoms and she Googles my symptoms and she's like, maybe you have pancreatic cancer. And I was just like, I remember my reaction because I don't know a lot about pancreatic cancer at the time, but I knew it wasn't good. And I knew it was like very, very lethal. And I was just like, God damn it, Brittany, do not put the evil eye on me like that. And that's exactly what she did. And I blame her. I 100% blame my sister um, for giving me metastatic pancreatic cancer. It's all her fault. Um, so a few weeks later, they, they, take, they take the stent out and... Uh, they're like, yeah, we're going to see, you know, the, the your all the, the biopsy results were fine. Um, 
the biopsy results were fine. Um, it was the not. brushings, everything was fine. So they took the stent out, and then a few weeks later, the symptoms came back. And then they decided it was my gallbladder. So they took my gallbladder out, which was like necessary, but not sufficient. Um, because they do end up taking your gallbladder out when you have a Whipple anyway. Um, and then after that, and, and this whole time, like, I have gotten, I, at this point, I've had so many MRIs and CTs and ultrasounds and f- four endoscopic ultrasounds um, and nothing. So it's it's like... Um, so they, they take my gallbladder out and they're like, you're going to be good. A few weeks later, I'm in Kentucky and the symptoms start to come back. And I start, I, I couldn't tell if I was just like traumatized by the itching, which is, it was so horrible. Or if the itching was coming back, but it, it, it did, you know, the, the symptoms came back and I went back to North Carolina and at this point, like, cancer is still not in the wheelhouse of terminology, right? Um, I'm talking to um, a, a GI, an endoscopist, I think, is, is the, the terminology. She's the, the, the person who did the ERCP, um, the endoscopic ultrasound, uh, on me, like, a hundred times at this point. At this, this is like the most intimate relationship I've had with a woman <laughs> at this point, right? Like she has seen my common bile duct, like, right? Like a hundred million times at this point. Uh, and, and, and before our appointment, I get some of the results from the most recent, uh, ERCP back and every, and they're fine. Um, and I go and I have this appointment with her and she says to me, well, you definitely don't have cancer. You for sure don't have cancer. If you, I'll never forget this. If you have cancer, I will roll over in my grave. And then two hours later, two hours later, I got an automatic notification with the rest of the results on my, my chart app. And it, said i was at work at the time it said uh you know use the word adenocarcinoma and i didn't know that word i but i knew enough that i knew it wasn't good because cancer words they all sound like they could be the bad guy in star wars um (laughs) right like sarcoma there could be like a whole star wars storyline honestly are the people who write star wars are they just stealing cancer words? <laughs> Who's to say? Um, in any case, um, I flip out because I Google adenocarcinoma and uh, it's not good. Um, the The guy who did my uh, my gallbladder surgery happened to be the like uh, one of the 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 peep, the hotshot uh, surgical oncologist at the hospital I was at. And so my results were forwarded back to him and he calls me and, and God bless him. He is great. And he looks like the original Superman, the actor who played the su- Superman in the 1980s. And I feel like that's what you want from your surgeon, 
right? You want them to look as much like Christopher Reeves as possible. Um, he's got like the butt chin. I think he played football for an Ivy League school. He looks, he's from Maine. He was in the army. It looks like he never has been sick once in his life. He calls me on his cell phone. He is at a conference and he is like, do not worry. We are going to take care of this. You are going to have what's called a Whipple. He described to me what it was. He says, you're going to be in my office in two days. We're going to go through it. You're going to have this, this surgery. It's going to be incredibly difficult to recover from. But I am confident um, that this is an early stage cancer. And at this point, my memory is hazy. And, you know, history is written by the winners. And so are your medical records, right? The winners are the losers. Um, and so if I, re I read my medical history and it said that the surgery was for um, possible pancreatic or ampullary cancer. But in the moment, it was definitely the latter that was stra stressed to me and not the former. Pancreatic cancer was still on no one's tongue. I, I, it, was, it was not, it was definitely suggested that I had ampullary cancer, which has a much higher survival rate. Um, and so... A week later, I'm in his office, or a few days later, I'm in his office, and, like, the, he's, like, in full Superman mode, right? He's, like, I, I look up what a Whipple entails, and I think it's, like, it's one of these Mayo Clinic, one of, they're, like, make sure the person who does this knows what the hell they're doing. Um, and so I was like, I didn't really know this guy. And I was like feeling very sheepish. And he was just like, oh no, I've done, I did one of these yesterday. I'm going to do one later in the week. I do a lot of these. Um, and I was just like, okay, cool, man. I just needed to see you, you know, whip it out and put it on the table. I needed that show of, of, of confidence. And uh, like a week later, um, Superman, uh, and I go in, uh, for surgery and I wake up and I don't know if this is on purpose, but the way they had me when I woke up, I couldn't see any clocks. There was like, I, I couldn't, I, no one was telling me anything and I didn't know what time it was. And, uh, but final, and I was, I mean, I had just come out of a pancreatoduodenectomy, right? I was pretty high. Um, but I caught a glimpse of the, uh, of a, a nurse's watch. And I remember thinking, that's not enough time. And, but I was still like, I was so, I was like singing Frank Sinatra songs to the nurses. I was like in full ham mode. Um, and they, my sister comes in and the surgeons come in because I found out that after that they did another Whipple after mine. 
uh, once they like closed me up, they had like another, I don't know if it was another Whipple after mine. It was another surgery after mine. So it takes a while, but they come in and my sister is there and she has, she is just, she's crying. And I just, I knew it was not good. Um, and he, uh, uh, my doctor, my surgeon puts his hand on me and he said, well, we found um, a tumor on the head of your pancreas and it has, I, I don't, and I read my medical records this morning and those were uh, like, <laughs> it had metastasized through my gut, um, throughout my gut rather. Um, and he said, because of that, we had to sew you back up. Um, this is, and I knew enough, right? That, you know, I've, I've watched Grey's Anatomy. I know. Right, the Whipple is like the cool, interesting surgery. So that's like if you're if you're a millennial with pancreatic cancer, go watch you some Grey's Anatomy. It'll it'll teach you everything you need to know about the the surgery. I promise. Um, I knew enough um, that it meant that he was he was telling me that I I was going to die. Um, but also, the funny thing is because I'm wearing a gown at this point. And I'm underneath this like big blanket. He doesn't really know. He's like trying to do the human thing by like touching me. But his hand is on, he doesn't realize his hand is on the inside of my thigh. And so like the whole time I'm, I'm stoned because I've just come out of surgery. And I know in my rational mind that he's telling me very bad news, but like the internal dialogue is like, this seems like a very inappropriate time to be hitting on me. Um, <laughs> um, and he says, he, he can tell at a certain point that like, I know, I know what's up. And he said, I, I don't want you to think that way because I don't believe that you are the average. Um, I think you are 32 years old and you will handle treatment better than a lot of people in your situation. And it sucks. Um, he says you're, you know, young and comparatively healthy. Um, and he was like, and your sister has you know, there's a history of breast cancer and BRCA in your family. And he's like, if your sister has it, I, I'm almost certain that you have it. And if that is the case, then there are a lot of um, targeted therapies that are available to you. And he said, I, th I hope that in one year, we can come back and try this again. And he said, I don't want you to think that that is, that's what's going to happen because this is a mean cancer. That's what he said. But um, I, I'm going to refer you to this oncologist and he's the best we have. And I think that in a year, if we're lucky, we can be here again. My oncologist not so confident. 
not, not so confident. After after I bully it out of him and uh, and and I I abused this poor man. He he told me I had one to three good years left with treatment, and I and so I I spend a week in the hospital and. I watch Harry Potter and I eat chicken fingers every meal for seven days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And sometimes my surgeon, he would try and switch the meals on me. Um, and nurses, and nurses do God's work, honestly. Uh, nurses are such beautiful souls. Um, and they would switch it back for me so I could watch my Harry Potter and and eat my chicken fingers and just be depressed. And I was dating a woman at the time and she was like trying to, like we had been, we'd known each other for a long time, but we had been dating for six months. And I remember, I was like, you need to, you need to get out of here. This is crazy. And she was like, she said, no, I love you. We're going to do this together. And I wish, I wish people listened to you when you talk, right? Because I knew that this, I, I knew myself and I am literally the patient from hell. Like not, not like this is not an exaggeration. I, like I said, I'm a difficult person. And when I tell people that they never believe me there, there's always, there's a belief in like a common rationality that when shit hits the fan, people will behave in a rational manner. And I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. Um, I, I knew like, I, I, I'm, I'm the, I was the kid who punched doctors and nurses and dentists. And I am so terrified of needles and it has nothing to do with pain. I, I think being in a body is disgusting. (laughs) I just like having blood drawn it even, I can't even watch people get shots on TV. I li- I have to cover my eyes. So I knew that this was going to be horrible. Um it was going to be so difficult. Um and I mean that my doctor has got a small glimpse of it uh while I was in the hospital because I didn't realize they were going to give me an epidural and I just I was sitting in the the bed and i was just like no you you can do it after i'm asleep but like you are not no um and finally they like it's like four o'clock in the morning and like they had to get someone from like the iv team you know like the the people who can like put an iv anywhere and like they were basically holding me down at this point like i i was just like if one of you would just hold my arms so i don't hit anyone because i can't control myself um but yeah no this is this is how this is how I am. Um, and I wish I wasn't this way. Um, but this is this is what we this is what we have to work with. So when I told everyone around me that like this is uh, this is get away, I wish some people had taken it seriously. Or like we 
had come to some kind of understanding or arrangement based on my own, you know, self-knowledge. But that is not the case. And my best friend moved from Senegal. Yeah, where he he worked. Um, he moved to Senegal from Senegal to Durham, North Carolina, to see me off into death. Um, but he couldn't get from Senegal to Durham before they put my port in. Um, so my other best friend had to fly from Maine to North Carolina to make sure that like I, that my friends did this. They coordinated this whole thing because they knew I wouldn't do it on my own. That like they needed to be there to make sure I walked through the door and didn't run away. Um, And for that, I am eternally grateful to them. Um, So, like, a week after I left the hospital, I had my port put in, and that was a hilarious experience, because I remember asking the doctor, I was like, am I going to be asleep? And he gave me one of those doctor answers that was, like, so inhuman that it's like, were you raised in a cage in the dark? Were you raised by wolves? And, and, right? It started with like, a, well, conventional notions of sleep. And I'm like, dude, I want to know if I'm going to like have consciousness or not. Can you be a person? And turned, and he said, he said to me, you'll be asleep. Well, I fucking wasn't. I was not asleep. And at one point, there's like a towel over my head. And at one point, I'm like, hello, I am under here. I feel some of these things. This is not what we talked about. And I remember a hand reaches under the towel and and strokes my head and says, shh, it will be over soon. And yes, and that. And so I left the hospital with my my assigned medical uh, escort. my friend Benjamin, um, and I, I don't know, at the, this was early May, I think my first day of chemo was May 27th, 2021, um, I started Fulfirinox, which is um, a combination of drugs given to pancreatic cancer patients, and I mean, it is, it's horrible. Um, when they talk about pancreatic cancer patients dying because they can't, like the treatment kills them, it is, it's no joke. It is, uh, it's, I know, I just did that thing where I made you laugh at pancreatic cancer, and now I'm doing the thing where I make you feel uh, serious about it, like right afterwards. I can tell you what I'm thinking right now, that I, so (laughs) I record a lot of episodes at this point, Mm. and uh usually usually when we end up talking about terminal diagnoses metastatic disease we usually it wow. is well usually it's not i mean it's it's funny but not that funny and it, it you know there's a relatively serious tone to it relatively inspirational tone to it relatively like you know this is how you live life in the last if you have a terminal diagnosis so that was like the mental model i was entering this conversation with and that is <laughs> 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 okay yeah no I, um, yeah, no, I am, uh, I'm not a terribly dignified, uh, I, I just, I, I don't feel, uh, I, 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 
yeah this this is how it happened um this this is honestly Matthew the reason the re- so I I literally had a tear come down my like cheek right now only because I was laughing that hard okay so it was not a oh my god this was not a sorry sorry session at all no. just um I I forgot to say between chemotherapy and and my port being put in the other friend gets to the United States from Senegal moves to Durham and I'm I'm still horribly depressed at this point I remember we I've been eating a lot of fast food after I got out of the hospital a lot of fast food and we have this meeting with my oncologist before I start chemo and the thing I hate about caretakers for me is that they always ask the impertinent question the question I don't want the answer to because I want plausible deniability because I want to eat fast food every day. And so when he's like, does he have to have any special diets? Does he have to be on a special diet? My oncologist is just like, if he wants to eat it, let him eat it. That's great. And that was awesome because I ate Burger King for 20 days in a row. <laughs> I ate Burger I made him take me to Burger King every day and i got a bk fish sandwich large with onion rings zesty sauce and two cheeseburgers and on day 21 he said no this is wrong this is disgusting and i cannot i i not yeah so at this point i had started chemotherapy and i could not get myself to burger king so i was i had to take a sabbatical uh from eating burger king um it was incredibly difficult uh fulfurinox is 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 no joke um and i forgot to mention that like i so i had lost my job during covid moved to north carolina lost the job i got there gotten diagnosed with cancer while i worked as a front-end manager at a grocery store to get myself back on my feet i I kept that job through the first five months of chemo. So I worked on my feet 40 hours a week. And cause like, I didn't know about like money and health insurance. And I didn't, I don't know anything. I have like a thousand books, uh, antique geography books, but like, I, I don't know. I was terrified. So I, I mean, I, I had to wear like special gloves because if I touched cold things, um, the chemo made my like skin really sensitive. Uh, it was, it was incredibly rough. I, I don't say that because I, I want to you know shine a light on how awesome and strong I am. I say it because like the, the system we have for for dealing with people with terminal illnesses in the United States is literally. It is so inhuman and so ass backwards and so laughable. Do you know, I I finally got on disability as a 35, as a 30, 32 year old. I think I got uh, $872 a month from the government. Yeah. Um, Thankfully, um, during, well, thankfully, my grandmother died at, at some point during my, uh, during my, my uh, diagnosis. And 
left me a little bit of money that like helped me pay for things and live while I was unemployed and the government was giving me $800 a month. Um, Fulfurinox did not work. And by September, um, well, my first CT and MRI, my tumor shrank slightly. Um, and this is in a, a, a context where like they can barely see my like they know the tumor's there because they had to fucking see it with their eyes um but like it is notoriously difficult to visualize pancreatic tumors um and so they told me that like the like radiology report said the tumor shrank slightly but my oncologist was like it's so like imperceptible um that like we're maybe still at the starting line and that was in the middle of the summer and by september my tumor had grown and had spread to my liver and things did not look good um and um they you know my oncologist and my surgeon, they both, like, they've both had to regroup from tremendous setbacks. And, right, it's it's not whether you fail, right? It's, like, how you succeed after you fail. Um, and my oncologist was like, well, this is not working. And thank God it wasn't working. Because at this point, I could barely stand up by myself the neuropathy was so bad like i had just broken down earlier that day because i told alec i told my friend i was like i don't think i can i don't think i can do more of this i can't i i can't and he said are you sure and i said i know i can't get up out of the chair by myself right now i need you to like hoist me on my feet um and so I was put on, a, my, my oncologist was like, we're going to try this, um, this other cocktail. Um, and it was wildly successful. It was so successful that like after my first set of scans, like three months in, my oncologist who told me, who was not confident that I would be a candidate for a Whipple again, and who told me in no uncertain terms that I had one to three good years left. He was like, if you, if your other scan is this good in three months, I'm going to suggest that we try surgery again. Um, and like three months later, there were no spots left on my liver and there were, uh, there was not, they, they couldn't find evidence of cancer in my MRIs or CTs outside of my pancreas. And so about a year later, almost exactly one year later, uh, my surgeon and I met under difficult circumstances where, you know, I again refused to let them give me an epidural until I was asleep. And there was a wild negotiation back and forth. Uh, because, you know, I like to hyper fixate on the trivialities. I didn't care that the that like a successful Whipple would be incredibly difficult to recover from. 
I didn't give a shit about that. I just am scared of needles. I made them access my port to knock me out. I made them access my port and they did. They were like, we generally don't like to. And I was like, I don't care. You can, I will say that if you're like me and you make them access your port for surgery with the understanding that they'll give you an IV once you're asleep, you'll wake up with 12 IVs in your body (laughs) and they will be the sloppiest, nastiest IVs you've ever seen before. Like I woke up, I swear I had like two IVs in each arm and there was like blood on my arms. Um, So they did me dirty, but like I, I, I did not care. Um, I went in for surgery. It was like four o'clock in the morning. It was still dark outside. My sister drove me. Um, and I woke up and my surgeon was like, success. Um he said that all of my, but they tested like 20 of my lymph nodes and all of the tests were negative for cancer. I, I can't remember exactly what the, the like reports after the fact said, but I remember the way he described it to me. He was like, there was like, even the tumor was like no longer like discern. It was like barely discernible as like live cancer. I I don't know. Um, It was good. It was good. It was not what I was expecting. I was expecting the other thing. Um, And I still kind of expect the other thing. Um, I recovering from a Whipple is no joke. Um, And, you know, I will say like the great thing about uh, being a 35 year old with metastatic pancreatic cancer is the, you know, the, the, the benchmark for success is like pretty low. Like I pooped like seven hours after surgery. And I swear there were nurses in the room clapping. <laughs> <laughs> And I got up, I got up that day. They were like, we're going to make you get up. And I have, I don't know if you can tell by how rapidly I talk sometimes, but I've got a lot of nervous, anxious uh, energy and I pace a lot. And after a Whipple, like you often, you can't sleep. And I just... I would pace the halls with my pictures of me with the the big old IV stand. And, you know, they tell you, we're going to make you walk. Like, it's going to be something you don't want to do. And in my case, it was something I really wanted to do. Um, and they, uh, finally, they had to tell me, like, I think I was making people feel anxious because I would just pace back and forth in the hallway and look in all of the rooms. Um <laughs> I I got out of the hospital. I was in the hospital for three or four days. I got home. My caretaker and I had a falling out and I did rehab by myself. And it was incredibly difficult. I basically, for, for all you folks listening at home who don't know, the surgery I had is basically they remove part of your pancreas, about, I think, a fourth of your small intestine, your gallbladder, 
a third of your stomach, and they basically like redesign your digestive system. And um, they they sever the nerve that, um, well, at least in my case, that like um, facilitates the emptying of your stomach and your stomach is smaller. And so the real challenge for me was um, ha- like to, to, to relearn how to, to eat again. Um, and that's what I spent that summer doing. I, I would, I, I had all kinds of like crazy hacks. Like I, I would, I set, cause they tell you eat small meals and I didn't really know what a small meal was. One day, like one of my first meals was a peanut butter sandwich. And that peanut butter sandwich sat in my stomach for like 16 hours. And it was so incredibly painful. One of my first meals at home left to my own devices. In the hospital, they were feeding me like jello and clear insure. And it was disgusting. Um, And... um, yeah, I, I would uh, eat a quarter of a hard-boiled egg every hour and a half. Um, and I, you finally retrain your, your digestive system to work. You, now my stomach, I don't know how it does it, but it, it works. It empties. Um, but it is, it's quite a trial. It's not unlike the feeling of gastroparesis I had during chemo. Um, and that uh, all of you people considering Ozempic at home are like uh, are are uh, you know at at risk for. Um, I I say that to people because like there is like people don't understand how much it hurts, how uncomfortable it is when your stomach won't empty. Um, and so I I mean like do whatever. Right. I just um, I have no problem with Ozempic. It's just uh, the, the that side effect yeah. is something that we trivialize and it is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and that's my song and dance on that. Um, finally, I got well enough and um, I was living basically a regular life and I met with my oncologist and uh, I decided that I wanted to do um, more chemo after surgery. Um, I just, I felt like chemo was very uncomfortable for me, but like it was something I I had uh, like resigned myself to. I learned how to make it livable for me. Um, and so having gone through all of this and terrorized myself and scared the crap out of myself. I didn't want it to be for nothing. So I did more chemo after treatment, after surgery. And that was brutal. Um, I just, I didn't, you know, if the, if the premise is that there's like little bits of pancreatic cancer, maybe floating around my body, I was like, why not? I'm going to complain anyway. Um, Why not just do this and it's not a choice that it's not something that you know i i was young i am young and i i felt like i could do that and i in retrospect i could only barely do it 
um, it is so brutal. The nausea and um, those kind of symptoms are were especially brutal for me after surgery and things like the anti-nausea meds they give you they stopped they stopped working um for me as effectively and i did three or four i think we were we were i was supposed to do four more um rounds or whatever um and i think i made it to three and i was like i think this is enough um, and now, and then I, I started oral maintenance after that. And, and that is actually when Natalie and I started dating. Um, Natalie and I grew, we, we went to college together. She dated one of my friends in college. I've known her for like 16 years and we would chat while I was sick. And, um, but you know, I was, uh, even though I was single, I thought I was, you know, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. And so, you know, it was very platonic, but like after, after surgery and after chemo and my doctor was like, yeah, still the CTs are good. I shot my shot. And, um, a few months later, uh, you know, I was visiting Nashville for the first, you know, to see Natalie and months after that, um, we moved in together and now we live in a, a small house in Detroit, right outside of Detroit with our little black pug, Monique. Oh, look at that. I mean, right? full circle, Matthew. <laughs> I, you know, the, I like to say that the worst thing in the world can happen to you and you can come out of it and the best thing in the world can happen to you. And that's how I like to think about this whole thing. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. I it was had, so much fun. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I don't think I've laughed this hard ever <laughs> on this show. I appreciate ever. that. And most definitely not about metastatic disease. So <laughs> I truly appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so I much. I would love to check in with you again and see how life is coming around. And maybe yeah. we can do like a part two or a part three to this episode. It's been, yeah, it's been 18 months without evidence of recurrent metastatic disease. I'm still, still going strong. Loving so, it. So we'll see after the next one, but I'm, you know, I'm bullish. I like it. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Matthew. I really mm -hmm. appreciate it. Say hi to Natalie and Monique from us. I will. And we will talk to you soon. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.